0: From the Lake County Wine Grape Commission and UC Davis, this is The Vine Line, an in-depth look at issues that winemakers and grape growers face across California. In this episode, we'll talk about the impact of
1: smoke on grapes and wine. Short duration intensive smoke from distant places, like when it settles in a still valley, like from the car fire or something, of several days probably isn't gonna have any effect on on your fruit. It's the fresh smoke that's really the issue. If you're close to an actively burning fire, that's when you're gonna be in trouble.
2: So when we talk about smoke taint, it's really when you have very overpowering, smoky aromas on the nose that makes the wine one-dimensional, decrease the quality, and then obviously that very, very distinctive ashtray aftertaste is definitely something we associate with smoke taint.
0: In response to the recent California wildfires, the Lake County Wine Grape Commission has initiated a collaborative research project to better understand the effects of wildfire smoke on grapes and wines. The project includes regional sampling, data gathering, weather and geographical modeling, and sensory analysis, the object of which is to produce actionable results for the wine industry. To help understand the complexities of what is sometimes referred to as smoke taint, we are joined by Glenn McGordy, Dr. Anita Oberholster, and Dr. Michael Jones of the UC Cooperative Extension, who were participants in a forum held in Lake County in the spring of 2019. We begin our discussion with a definition of smoke, which Extension Service Farm Advisor Glenn McGordy describes as a very toxic aerosol.
1: It's made up of uh, visible airborne products of combustion, which include tar, ash, carbon, and partially burned fuel fragments. There are a lot of gases Carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, nitrous oxide, sulfur oxide, uh, ammonia, and uh, methane. And smoke makes up about one5 to 2% of what's actually burned. So when are you likely to have problems with this? Well, if you have prolonged exposure, like the Lightning Complex fire in 2008, which lasted for close to four weeks, burning around Mendocino County, uh, did a lot of damage to, to the wine industry that year. And when you're really in trouble is when smoke inundates your vineyard near a rapidly burning fire uh, with considerable heat, as when it, when it blows into or rises through your vineyard, such as when you're on a hillside and the fire is below. The, the damage is going to occur with fresh smoke, since it contains volatile phenolics and, and glycosides. And we're going to learn a lot about that uh, in this talk. Short-duration intensive smoke from distant places, like when it settles in a still valley, like from the car Fire or something, of several days probably isn't going to have any effect on on your fruit. It's the fresh smoke that's really the issue. If you're close to an actively burning fire, that's when you're going to be in trouble. So here's an example: uh, If you are, find the pointer here. If if you are in this vineyard and the fire is over here, you probably don't have much of an issue as long as the fire keeps burning up the hill. But if you're up here in this vineyard, you're probably going to have smoke damage. There's probably going to be uh, a lot of phenolics that end up in that are going to give you trouble. So what are the smoke flavor compounds? Lignin and wood is the primary source of phenolic compounds causing smoke flavors. And lignin makes up about 20 to 30 percent of the wood by weight. And this lines the water conductive tissues and, give wood, and gives the wood strength. Now, the two compounds we really focus a lot on are guaiacol and foreign method guayacol. They're associated with smoke flavors. We know a lot about them because of the, the processed food industry knows a lot about them. Uh, we describe the, the flavors as bacon, smoky, leather, spicy, salami, smoked salmon. And we associate that with smoked grapes. They're also found in toasted oak barrels. So if we even look at a regular processed wine, like a, a, a Cabernet finished on French oak, it's probably going to have a fair amount of guaiacol. I mean, if all we had to deal with was wine that tasted like bacon, it would be fine, because everything goes better with bacon. But uh, these other 70 uh, phenolic compounds that don't give such great flavors, licking an ashtray, burnt garbage, burnt potato, campfire drenched with water, and also manure is another smell that we get sometimes from it. So that's not so good. These are the smoked uh, compounds that are usually tested. The volatile phenols, which are free in the juice and wine, which would be guaiacol, 4-methylguayacol, syringol, phenol, and m-cresol. And then the glycosides are pretty much the same compounds, except that they're bound up. And they're sitting there uh, waiting to be broken down. They're hydrolyzed, and then they come loose. And this is what makes winemakers crazy. And uh, I think Anita is going to go into more discussion about this. So. What are associated with mouthfeel uh, and, and flavors? Well, we just went through those. Okay. And where are they? The, they accumulate in the skins rather than the pulp and the juice. So when, we, we're, when we're dealing with this and processing it, the less skin contact ha- we have, the better off you are. So if we're doing white grapes, there are methodologies to really reduce uh, getting the smoke compounds into the fruit and the juice. So we can test before picking to figure out how much is in there. Uh, and this has been kind of the old standby, is that if you have more than 0.5 parts per billion guaiacol, you may have problems. And guaiacol may not be given the bad flavors, but it's an indicator of other phenolics from burnt wildland fires. So they're highly correlated. If you have one, you probably have the others. And we'll show that in some of the data that we, we uh, did in this study. Any fruit with more than about five parts per billion guaiacol is probably going to be difficult to clean up, especially if it's red fruit, because red fermentations have to have skin contact, and these compounds are in the skin, so the more skin contact you have, the more compounds you're going to get. And when are you at risk? Well, c- the further you go down this direction towards ripeness when you're exposed to smoke, the more likely you are to suck up the compounds. And why is that? Well, there's enzymes that are called glycosyl transferases that bind sugars to the smoky volatiles. Normally, the enzymes bind uh, glucose to trans-resveratrol, a naturally occurring metabolite in the grapevine, so it's kind of like a preservative. And uh, the resveratrol is usually released by the plant in a pathogen infection or injury to counteract bacteria and fungi. It's a natural antioxidant. It's the French paradox. When they talked about why is wine good for you, it's resveratrol. It's an antioxidant that also helps keep your your veins healthy uh, and is generally recognized as being good for health. However, don't overdo it. All you need is five ounces of red wine per day. Any more than that is probably excess and you're not going to get any health benefit from it according to the studies. Uh, Smoke flavored compounds, being phenols, will substitute for resveratrol and are released during or after winemaking. So the plant doesn't really know the difference between resveratrol and all these phenolics. So a phenol basically being a benzene ring with a hydroxyl group on it. So to the plant, they all look alike, and it just binds them up. It thinks it suddenly is exposed to a lot of the resveratrol and just sucks it all up. And uh, I don't know if there's other plants that have similar reactions, but that's how smoke uh, flavors work. So it gets worse then when we, uh, fermentation occurs because what happens is that the yeast will cleave those phenolic compounds during fermentations. The phenolics are bound with sugar and the yeast will metabolize the sugar and suddenly you have these uh, what were previously bound up compounds into the wine. So we see that warm f- fermentations and low acidity also uh, cause it to be cleaved and just even exposing the, the grape skin with the juice releases the compound. So here's a case of some work done by ETS labs and uh, here's uh, five different samples with different levels of guaiacol in it. Here's the whole berries where we analyze them so you can see they're, they're fairly low um, and then here's the soaked juice with no skin contact I mean fresh juice with no skin contact so again we don't get a lot of guaiacol in there but as soon as you soak it, then all of a sudden the concentration's really going up. So just crushing the fruit and letting it soak brings out the smoke. Then when you take a look at uh, whole berry samples and corresponding wine, you see a really big jump, as much as tenfold. Again, some ETS uh, laboratory data. Here we are down around five parts per billion, and then we jump up to almost 50 parts per billion and 60 in some cases. So, uh, you know, there's a tremendous impact of fermentation if you have skin contact and and these compounds in the juice. I just want to mention, a part per billion is about the equivalent of three drops of something in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. So our ability to sense these chemicals are amazing. Uh, It's really interesting how effective uh, we can be at tasting things. But humans differ, so there's a couple things also going on. Is that not not everyone perceives smoke flavors the same way. Some people barely notice it, and other people gag when they get even a small uh, amount of it in the wine. We find that enzymes in human saliva can also cleave off remaining sugars, causing an unpleasant retronasal ash perception. Uh, Others are reminded of Britannomyces flavors, kind of short fruit or tired tastes in fresh wine. So you know something's wrong with it. Winemakers become sensitized to it, and it causes great stress when they taste it, especially if it's their wine and they have to sell it. And uh, we find that white wines can be cleaned up pretty effectively, whereas red wines are more of a challenge to fix if they're seriously affected. I want to talk about now the Lake County Smoke Flavors and Wine Study. So this is initiated by bad behavior of large wineries canceling contracts across the board, just saying, hey, Lake County, you're smoke affected, we're not taking your fruit. And that was pretty unfair because uh, not all the fruit was affected the same. And there is a lack of standards for volatile phenols, glycoside content in the fruit. So uh, the Lake County Winegrave Commission really wanted to learn from a disaster situation. And I have the pictures of some people who are very supportive of this, like David Weiss and Brock Soller and, and Peter Molnar and, of course, our, our uh, benevolent leader here, uh, Deborah. So we got together to talk about it. And we had a few basic questions we wanted to answer. Are all the Lake County vendors equally affected by smoke following this great disaster? Can we use microfermentations as a good way to screen fruit for potential smoke damage compared to just berry sampling and running guayacal? And then how does distance from the fire, wind direction, and elevation affect smoke damage to fruit? So this is kind of a map of our study. The, the red part that you see, whoops, hit the wrong button, sorry. Ah, uh, you're not going backwards. Here we go. The red part is the outline of the fire. So this is uh, the, the river fire. My place is right there. That's where the fire started. And then this is the ranch fire. The ranch fire started uh, close to Potter Valley and burned all the way around. And there was a second fire that happened before both these fires, which is the Pawnee Fire, which was down here in Long Valley. Here we are, uh, 438 miles up, looking down at at Clear Lake and the the region. And I'm sorry, I keep hitting the wrong button. So this is smoke coming down from the car fire that was burning up by Redding. And the first smoke started to show up over here uh, on the 27th of July. And by the 28th of July, we had some pretty good fires going here. These are hot spots where things are flaming. And here's a smoke plume. Clear Lake is kind of underneath all that and the prevailing winds were this way. So for instance, my vineyard was across the street 60 feet from where the fire started. There was no gawaii call detected because the wind was blowing from the northeast and it didn't go through my vineyard even though I was very close to the fire. That gets really bad. You can see how dense the smoke is getting and uh, this was probably what did the most damage because we'll find out as as we go through this that this was uh, where uh, some of the worst smoke effects were on vineyards. Now this is pretty typical of how things looked. Uh, these are all burned, uh, uh, and here's a vineyard that was close by, but smoke all around it. So the project was designed, we talked a little bit with the Australian Wine Research Institute. We chose Cabernet Sauvignon because it's most widely grown, and we set up a transect to look uh, across all the major appellations we fruit we analyzed fruit for volatile phenols and then uh, we did microvinifications analyzed for both volatile phenols and glycosides the glycosides had to be sent off to australia because nobody locally does them whereas ets labs took care of our, our uh, volatile phenols or i should just say guaiacol and ferulic guaiacol microvinifications we took about 60 pounds of fruit it's enough for about 8 finished bottles of wine Uh, We did 13 vineyards in Lake County plus one from Napa Valley, and we sampled twice. Uh, One post-verasion, most samples were under 20 bricks, and then another closer to harvest, which were above 22 bricks. Twenty-two sample lots were total. Here's our fermentation at uh, UC Hoppin Research and Extension Center. So Ryan and I did all this, and I have to admit I'm not Andre Telechef, so this was not great wine, but at least it was sound enough for us to taste. Here's the data that we got out of it. I just want to show you there's a lot of data points. Uh, it was involved, it was expensive to do the analysis, and uh, it's quite an undertaking for the Lake County Winegrave Commission to do all of this. And I'm glad that we did because we learned a lot. Research question number one. Not all vineyards were affected by smoke. Some of them were pretty high, some were not. Uh, the berries showed increases in guaiacol concentrations as ripening progress. So if you're going to sample uh, you can sample during the fire, but you really are going to get better data the closer you, you get towards uh, uh, harvest and the microvinifications really showed the increases of, of volatile phenol concentrations following fermentation. Microvinification is really the way to go If you have time uh, that 's what you should really focus on because then you can actually taste what the wine's going to do and you can start as early as verasion it 's kind of rough to sample those wines because they are really tannic, but you can still pick out the smoke if it's there. So here's just some examples from the numbers on the bottom of the different vineyards. So here's our control, which was from Rutherford, uh, and not exposed to smoke. And you can see that it's quite different. Some of these are around a half a part per billion, and others are way up there, around uh, 18 parts per billion in the berries. So that one's going to have a big problem, we know just looking at berry sampling. So, berry sampling does kind of work. The standard is that if you're above about probably a half a part per billion, you may have smoked taint, but when you start getting up around uh, four to five, you're definitely going to have an issue. And that's four methyl not quite as important, but still tested. Next, we did sensory analysis, and uh, we had 14 people under the leadership of uh, Anita Oberholster. And how we did it was that we had the wines in front of us. We would rate one uh, if nothing was detected, and five if it was awful tasting, where you don't even want to put it in your mouth. Uh, and then three is something is wrong with it. So that's kind of how we did it, was from a one to three, or one to five uh, setup. And here we are. Here's the office with all the wines in front of us. Deborah did a great job with Megan to set this up. This was in bald. It took a lot of glassware, too. So this is what we found. What we found is that there's a point right around, uh, somewhere between five and 10 parts per billion of guaiacol, where you it, things are sort of mixed. It's not really clear. You can't tell what's going on. The, you, know, you may know something's wrong, but you may not. So some of these are really didn't show up as really having much of an issue. But once we get to about 10 parts per billion, then stuff's definitely wrong. You can see here's our scale going up. So uh, one means things are, probably pretty normal, and and, uh, five would be, we don't really want to drink this. And you can see, right about 10 parts per billion, the wines are really off. Okay, Michael Jones, are you here? Okay, so uh, now we're gonna talk a little bit about the modeling work that we did. I say we, but I really mean Michael. Michael Jones is our, our new extension forester, and he's a wizard at statistics. And uh, he does a lot of work in, in forest health, and he's done modeling work in forest health. And he's going to tell you what were kind of the interactions that made the vineyards have problems uh, in this fire, and where are the, the, the places where uh, the hot spots showed up for, for guaiacol and, and other phenolics to, to be a problem. Michael?
3: All right, thanks, Glenn. Uh, first of all, it's very generous of you to call me a statistical wizard, but I fake it and stumble my way through like everybody else. All right, so sorry if I'm going to repeat some of the stuff Glenn said. I'm actually across the street at Ag Days dealing with hundreds of little children, so I'm a little frazzled. But basically, we wanted to run on what Glenn had already done. We had the sensory analysis data, so we wanted to see if we could find some relationships between the location of the vineyards and some of the environmental factors. So elevation, distance from the fire, uh, temperature, wind direction, wind speed. So all these kinds of factors that influence the movement of smoke and maybe the amount of contamination or the amount of smoke inundation that would occur at each vineyard. So uh, what we did from the satellite imagery, we didn't show every single day, but we looked through the satellite data and we saw there was about a two-week period from the start of the fire on July 27th to about August 12th, uh, where there was basically south or southwest winds pushing the smoke across the study area in in Lake County. So what I did was we collected data from a series of weather stations in in Napa County. Um, So elevation distance, uh, temp, wind, speed, wind direction. And then we took the microfermentation data that Glenn and the, t- the sensory analysis and also the, the chemical, the compound uh, concentration data to build a model. So basically what we want to do, as I said, was look at as the explanatory value, the, date, the taste data, and then see can we relate that or is there a relationship between that and the chemicals and then these environmental variables. First, I just want to point out that we tested, I don't remember the number, how many, how many chemicals, like 8, 12? 12 compounds. And I just want to show here that, so these are our our phenolic glycosides, and this is just the raw data and then the concentration. And these are our our phenols. So this right here is guaiacol. And I just want to point out, they're highly correlated. And I'm not just making that based on the graph. If you want to read that, you can. But basically, what it's a correlation matrix shows that everything is highly related to each other. So one means highly correlated. So you can see that, though, in the graph, that as one concentration goes up, the rest go up. So we decided to use guaiacol as our our representative chemical compound since that was something that can be easily measured here with the labs. Alright, so, like I said, we collect environmental temperature data. Here's the study area. Here's the perimeter of the fire by August 12th. Each of these is the location of a weather station that I collected data from. So we used Ranch System West, uh, Western Weather. They are generously shared their data with us. Um, ACIS, which is kind of NOAA's data. And then Weather Underground, it's a great resource. If, if you can collect data from it, use it. Even though it's owned by Weather Station now, so they kind of suck. All right, so uh, because we have one sampling point for the the taste ratings and the chemical concentrations, I really, this is really coarse. Don't get mad at me, don't fault me. I just kind of averaged everything together across that two week period, just because we want to look at a single value, what's kind of some of the driving factors here. So I took a mean value across that two week for each variable. And then I put that into ArcJS. And what we do is these are the location of our vineyards. You create a spatial model. So basically you do this inverse distance weighting, the spatial interpolation. And it estimates across a surface the values in your study area. And so then I can use those data and extract them at the location of the vineyards to kind of predict what was the value at that point. So what was the mean daily temperature? What was the wind speed? What was the wind direction? So that's kind of how we pulled these data for this analysis. All right, so the first model, like I said, is the taste data, sensory analysis, plus guaiacol, and then our environmental variables. Distance from fire. So here you can see the fire parameters. so these were really close. Elevation of the vineyard itself, temperature, wind speed, wind direction. And what we see is, you saw this before, we have this nice relationship, you can almost put a line through it, you can see it's a nice uh, relationship there. What we see is that when we test the model out, we find that the really the strongest variable is guaiacol. And so, with, like Glenn mentioned, above 10 micrograms per liter, we see this trend where it taste really gets worse. Um, and it's a really strong relationship. So, if you are familiar with your statistics and linear regression, we have an R- adjusted R squared of about 0.9, which is amazing. A model explained 90% of the variability. I'd also argue that we see kind of maybe a relationship at, at 5 micrograms or parts per billion that maybe that even starts to affect flavor. But really, it's clear at 10. So because all the environmental variables fell out, I wanted to kind of test them against guaiacol. So all right, maybe taste data wasn't a good way to go with testing the environmental variables, so let's use guaiacol, the chemical compound, and then test against those variables. So same variables. We added, we were generous enough, somebody else initially shared some of their data, so we added 14 more data uh, points. So each of these red uh, dots indicates a study vineyard, and then the bigger the circle, the higher the guaiacol concentration. So it's pretty obvious from here that these, four vineyard locations right at the edge of, oh, I always mess this up, river? Ranch, ranch. ranch. At the ranch fire, are, we're really heavily impacted. Something's going on there. So when we test this model, what we get, and really the summary, I'm trying to make this fast. Don't worry about this. That's a wind map on temperature, temperature data, just to kind of show you how the, all the data comes together. So here's the model output. What we see is that as you move away from the fire, concentrations decrease. As mean daily temperature goes up, concentrations increase. And as the prevailing wind speed, so faster winds, you get a negative relationship. And then wind direction; these are degree models. So think of zero as north, and then 360 is all the way up. So it'd be 359.9 is all the way a north prevailing wind. So the higher, so the more northerly the wind, the lower the concentration. Um, so that's kind of what teased out elevation, which surprised Glenn. Um, and us, because we thought that might be a factor, especially if we have inversion layers, where you get smoke sitting on the vineyard throughout the day and night. But that didn't tease out in the model. So to sum it all up, what we can say is that sensory rating is definitely, the taste is definitely influenced by the chem- chemicals, guaiacol. Man, the more you have in it, the worse it tastes. And then the guaiacol concentrations are affected by distance from fire, temperature. So whether it's the, just, I did the mean daily temperature, but it could be lows, highs. There's lots of variability in there. And then wind speed and wind direction. So the faster the winds are, maybe that means that the winds are pushing the smoke out faster so it's not having time to sit and the barriers to absorb the chemicals. And then maybe wind direction, uh, if it's pushing them really fast from the due north or if it's pushing from a southerly direction, of course it makes sense. It needs to put the smoke over the vineyards. And as I mentioned, elevation didn't factor out. It might not be that elevation is not a factor. It might just be simply the, the size of the sampling data. It might just not have been sense enough to pick that up. But what I want to, uh, last thing I want to say is that we underestimate those higher glycol concentrations. I don't know if I had another picture. But basically, we see at these lower data points that the model fits really, really well. But when we get to the higher concentrations, remember those four vineyards I pointed out right on the edge of the fire, they're really, really high values compared to the rest, right? 33 parts per billion, 20 parts per billion, 18 parts per billion, and then 10, 15 parts per billion. Um, they don't fit the model very well, so we're underestimating those values. It looks like there could be an exponential relationship, so maybe something's happening where you're accumulating. Once you start accumulating, then the berries start accumulating chemicals faster and faster and faster. Not sure. It might just be a sampling error again because we didn't have very many high concentrations. So it's not a great fit model, but it definitely kind of indicates that as we would kind of assume that some of the factors that, uh, you know, might be kind of intuitively playing in the model do seem to have some impact. All right. I think that's it for me, do you want me to go over this? Okay.
1: I would say that guaiacol is a good indicator for all smoke compounds as volatile phenols and uh, are very closely correlated to glycosides as one goes up in concentration so do the others not necessarily in the same proportions but they definitely go up Lake County Vineyards were most certainly not uniformly affected by smoke and sensory panels uh, uh, noted that some wines uh, had no perceptible problems with smoke flavors and this is why we need standards so that when so, when we have an incident that the wineries don't just automatically cancel contracts, there needs to be some way of, of assuring that there's not an issue. Microfermentations are useful for determining whether wine will have a problem. It's probably a more sensitive test than berry sampling since you can taste the wine, and plus, you also uh, bioaccumulate more of these compounds in the wine. And uh, I would say that wines above 10 parts per billion guaiacol content are most likely to have smoke flavors and may need treatment to minimize off flavors. Is that and I think we have one more point. This is kind of your.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, Right, We do see we can try to model some of those environmental variables to, to kind of predict or find that relationship. I wouldn't use this as a predictive model because it's pretty weak, but I would say that we can see there's definitely a correlation or a relationship between where the vineyards are located in relationship to the fire. Obviously we need more data, so the more data points we have, the more robust we can make the model, the more we can kind of answer some of these errors. Um, but it does help explain why some vineyards were affected the way they were as opposed to others right? We can assume that location in fire and where the wind was going was really big factors. And then it's really, it's actually really hard to set up this kind of study. We're kind of testing it post-fire event, but if you could somehow predict where the fire is going to be, send out sampling, uh, penetrate into evacuation zones, get around Cal Fire and the police and go sample during active fire, that'd be best. It'd be great if we could do that on an hourly basis for every day the smoke is in the vineyard. But we can't. So we kind of are making a really educated guess here on this one. But it's good to see that, I mean, frankly, I'm, I'm surprised I got a statistical significance out of this model at all. So it means that we're definitely onto something here.
1: Okay. Just special thanks to the Lake County Grave Commission for supporting all the chemical analysis. That was an expensive bill. And uh, I really appreciate the growers who allowed us to sample their vineyards. It was a disaster. And, and the last thing you want in a disaster is any more attention. The Research and Education Committee who directed the study were wonderful to work with. They're very, very supportive. The AWRI researchers for guiding our study design in the beginning. Allison Jacobson of Joel wines for sharing data from their sampling analysis. Allison was just absolutely magnificent working with us and the tasting panel members. And with that, thank you very much. Okay. Well, in the interest of time, we, we can you can catch up with me. I'll be around. We're going to have kind of a, a chance to have lunch and and interact with each other. Michael's got to go back to the farm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he he's he's not going to be around. Maybe he'll join us for lunch when the other program is over. And and uh, with that, we'll turn it over to Anita. So uh, I think most of us know Anita Oberholster who've been in, involved with this study, but she she's our extension analogist, uh and is based at UC Davis and uh, is a wealth of information and she tells me that she's an introvert but I, there's no indication in her daily behavior so.
2: <laughs> a high functioning introvert. I hide it well. There's a difference. Coming. Okay, so I'm gonna go quite fast in the beginning uh, because Glenn gave in some of his background information, covered some of the stuff I'm gonna talk about, covered some of the stuff I'm gonna talk about. If I forget to keep this in front of my mouth, just do this, it will remind me. Okay, so what is smoke taint? So the first thing to think about, we call something a taint when it's something from outside that overpowers your wine and basically diminish other character and makes your wine one-dimensional. That's what we call a taint in wine terms, okay? So when we talk about smoke taint, it's really when you have very overpowering, smoky aromas on the nose that makes the wine one-dimensional, decrease the quality, and then obviously that very, very distinctive ashtray aftertaste is definitely something we associate with smoke taint. Now, I'm going to use the word aftertaste. It's a misnomer because there's no such thing as an aftertaste, okay? We have five basic tastes, ashy is not one of them. Basically, what happens is, and Glenn talked about this a little bit as well, um, because you can perceive some aroma in your mouth, the back of your nose and your throat is connected to each other, you get this, what you perceive as an aftertaste because it's the back of the throat as you swallow, but it's actually a retronasal aroma or flavor that you're perceiving. But I'm probably going to use the word aftertaste as I go on, just for your information. So, Glaine talked about this a little bit, so, would mostly contain lignin, hemicellulose, and cellulose. Now, here on the left, this is what lignin actually looks like. So, lignin is like the fiber in your food, okay? It gives wood structure. So, there's plenty of it. And when it burns, it basically, you get thermal degradation of lignin. If you look at what it looks like, so a volatile phenol is basically a ring with a hydroxyl, that's an OH group, on top of it. And you can see how many of them would be released if that gets broken up, okay? Makes sense. So basically, when you toast a barrel, you get the same effect. A fire is just more like very, very heavy toasting and totally going, you know, over what you would ever want to do to your barrel. So what happens is, so your berry skin is porous. Things can absorb onto a berry and go inside the skin. So volatile phenols very quickly, it really happens instantaneous. It goes through the skin and it's inside. So it's not sitting on the top, you can't wash it off, you can't remove it. When it's in there, it's in there and it's there to stay. Um, What happens is they've shown the glycosyl transferase, there's enzymes that can bind it to glycosides. Mono di and tri glycosides. The thing is, we suspect there's other things it's binding to as well. We just can't prove it. Okay? There's more things there than what we can measure, and this is why we're struggling to find correlations, really good models between what we measure and how to predict smoke taint development in a wine. So. Um, Glenn also referred to the study. So this is a three-year study that they did in Australia in Merlot wines. And this is a study everybody refers to when they talk about, okay, when are grapes susceptible to smoke exposure and potential smoke taint development? So basically, they tested the vines at different stages during ripening. And the moral of the story is there's no point in time where they're not susceptible. Okay, But they do get more susceptible the riper those grapes get. So they found a week after veraison until harvest was when the grapes were the most um, sensitive to smoke exposure. However, they will probably vary a little bit depending on the variety you're working with. And the other thing to remember, even in the high susceptible range, it decreased from veraison to full ripeness by 22%. And I think part of that is because of the enzymes present in grapes that bound, bind these compounds, Enzyme activity does actually decrease slightly as grapes ripen, so it could be an f- impact of that. I'm not sure, it's just my own deduction. The only good news is, you don't have, have any carryover of smoke time, okay? Next year, you start afresh, it doesn't hang around, it doesn't sit in the wood somewhere, it's gone, okay? It's only in, really in the grapes. Also, leaves. Leaves do absorb volatile phenols, right? So it is a source of volatile phenols. However, there's very little translocation from the leaves to the grapes. So we don't really worry about removing leaves for that reason. The only thing is you don't want leaves in your fermentation because in your fermentation, that will obviously be another source of volatile phenols, which you don't want. Okay, so in the beginning when they started doing research, they only measured garcol and formethylgarcol. Then, as they were doing studies, they realized they couldn't really predict the sensory results that well. And then they decided, okay, they should expand it to these seven compounds. So they added the orthoparametocressols and they added the seringol and 4-muthylseringol. But even then, they realized, okay, this is not working. We're not having enough predictive power. And that's when they realized that there are bound compounds. So some of the research was done only measuring this, some research was done measuring this, and some research was done measuring that and all the potential bound compounds. Now, there's probably way more than we know. So this is the problem. There's your volatile phenols and this is all the potential bound ones, okay? So what happens is um, wine is an acidic medium and over time, these compounds can hydrolyze and give you volatile phenols. They're pretty stable. It takes a very long time for that to happen. The more concerning thing is that they found out that we have bacterial microorganisms in our saliva that have enzymatic activity that can hydrolyze these compounds in your mouth. So it means that even if you have no free, these bounds aren't volatile, so you're not supposed to be able to smell them. do that aftertaste thing. However, that aftertaste, we think that ashy aftertaste are these bound compounds being released while you're tasting the wines, and that's why the more you taste it, the more apparent it becomes. It's because of that enzyme activity in your mouth. I also believe that's the reason why some people can't taste it at all. It's a very small portion of the population don't have these microorganisms. Okay, I'm not gonna go massively into methods, but basically the free volatile phenols is a GC method. It's pretty simple, not too difficult. The bound is really problematic to measure them. So you need very advanced techniques. The AWI does a list of 13. The Canadians have expanded that to 23. Um, we've done some samples, I've found some potential 33 different ones you don't, there's no standards. Somebody needs to synthesize these things in an organic lab. There's a reason why these tests aren't freely available. It's really difficult even for research labs to implement these methods. So basically people are looking for workarounds. So then they use beta-glacosidase. Can I just hydrolyze everything and just measure the free? They don't work well for anything higher than a monoglycoside. They don't work on the dye or the tri and anything else that may be in there. Then we try acid hydrolysis. It's hydrolyzing more things than just the glycosides. It gives you an idea, but it's not an absolute number. It's more a guesstimate of how much is potentially in there. It's really a harsh condition, so as you free it, things get broken down again. So it's just something to remember. But it gives you an idea of that iceberg under the ocean level. So this is just a list of what the AWI is currently measuring for you at $300 a sample. Okay, so what this is, and I'm gonna click to the next one because it sort of shows you the same thing. So they did something really interesting in Australia. They do have a few organic chemists working for them and they made all these compounds. So they made all the volatile phenols and then they made the bound compounds that they're actually measuring. And they took a base wine, a red base wine, And then they basically added things together. So what I want to show you, that is all volatile phenols together. And this is medicinal burn ashtray aftertaste smoky. So this is sort of some of the three main characteristics you get from a smoke tendered wine. This is all the phenols. This is just alcohol. This is all the cresols. So what you can see here is that all the phenols were actually less smoky than just some of them together. They have synergistic impacts, and some of them actually working against each other. It's very complex. It's matrix effects. Here you have all the glycosides put together. If you add all the glycosides with all the phenolics, it actually becomes more smoky. If you put all the glycosides and all the phenols, you see it's really actually in a high concentrations That was the most smoky. But on their own, they're all over the show. They all contribute to it, but depending on the combinations of, they do they actually enhance each other or suppress each other. And it's really hard to, to basically um, predict what they're going to do. So I want to talk a little bit about threshold levels. So what a threshold is. So standardly, when we say something has an odor threshold level, it means 50% of consumers can pick out that there's something different in that sample. They can't tell you what's different. It's different. If you want recognition thresholds, it means they need to be able to say smoke, for instance. So that is even higher than an ODT level. Now most of the levels that you see in literature was done in water or model wines. That does not reflect what you will see in a wine. To really do have good ODT levels, you should do it in the wine you're evaluating these compounds in. They take the wine, they strip the flavor out, and then they put certain amounts back in. Obviously, and you need like over 50 consumers to determine an ODT level, it's impractical. You can't do that for every wine you're looking at, but it just gives you an idea that you take ODT levels with a, piece, a pinch of salt, okay? So this is the thing. This is why researchers like to talk about best estimate thresholds. We're giving ourselves a backdoor. So if you look at this, these are the levels that they've determined in just a base rate wine, okay? I don't even have Syringol on there. They have a very high detection threshold level. The thing is, these levels look nice and high, but I can tell you we can see these compounds in wines at much, much lower levels because they have synergistic impacts with each other, okay? So it's not really worthwhile looking at these on an individual basis. So they did the same thing with the glycosides. They made them, and you can see at this level, and this is 500 milligrams, 500 micrograms per liter, so 500 parts per billion. Only galchol beta-D-glucoside actually had significantly smoky ashy flavors. That's high values. So if you look at them individually, you're like, huh, I'm not getting close to these numbers, no problem. But in practice, we know much, much, much lower levels already give people problems. So when the fire started in 2017, and I started looking at these things. This is basically all that I'm going to summarize in a couple of slides. All the research the Australian Wine Research Institute and the University of Adelaide have done in the last 15 years. Because at this point in time, they're the people that really have done most of, of the work. They recommended hand picking. It's not always practically possible, for economic reasons and various other reasons. But basically, because it's in the skin, the more skin contact you have, the more you can extract these compounds in the juice. And it happens quite easily. Then they said, OK, remove mock during processing because the leaves are a source of these compounds. That's absolutely correct. Another thing they did is, they uh, they smoked some Grenache. So they actually had a control and a smoke exhaust sample, and they made from each a red wine control and a rosé, just to see, can you, by making rosé, solve your problem? Now, the problem is their red wine controls at 15 degrees. Don't ask me why. That is like, uh, what, 68, kind of? No? That's too high? 68 degrees Fahrenheit? I mean, it's really low. Um, we ferment at 25 to 30 red wines. Um, So basically what they found was that the rosé from smoke exposed and the rosé from the control was similar. So they see that as a success. Not that it always makes sense to make a rosé from a red wine uh, economically. Um, Here, and what they said is their smoke, a rosé of their smoke exposed grapes at 30% less than their standard. Which is fine. So yes. If you make a rosé, you're going to get less of those compounds. It is a potential solution if making a rosé makes sense, and it's a potential solution if your smoke-exposed grapes are on the lower end, I think. If it really has a high number of volatile phenols, I think it will just stand out in a very simple wine like a rosé. Then what they did is they took Merlot, and they once again in 15 degrees, and they took samples every day. So that gives you an idea of how quickly these compounds extract pretty quickly, and that's at 15 degrees. At higher temperatures, it would be quicker. They looked at different yeasts and found, yes, if you have a more fruity yeast, then you don't actually smell it. And it's true, you can cover it up on the nose, but you would still taste it. It would still have the flavor. They realized that malolactic fermentation had no impact on um, smoke expression. They tried different things, like different amounts of um, in a logical tannin, different oak chips, and things like that, and decided that if you add it at a low level oak that um, have no toasty tobacco, that kind of aromas that you're not looking for, it can really add complexity on the nose and it can cover the smoke. The problem is it doesn't help for any kind of aftertaste that you may have in the mouth. Then this is more amelioration They looked at different finding agents, and this is the one that decided worked the best. Carbon finding at a very low level. Now you have to do it at a very low level or you will strip your wine of everything else as well. The problem here is all the amelioration techniques, treatments after the fact, really lack specificity. So it will remove some of the volatile phenols, and you can't treat it too harshly because then you remove everything that is volatile. And, but it won't remove the bound. So over time, many times, the bound will get released and it comes back. And that's what a lot of people seen is that the flavors come back. Same with reverse Osmosis. It works to remove some of the volatile free, but it does not remove the bound. So basically that was where we were at 2017. This was the list of recommendations made by the AWRI and what they give their um, um, winemakers and based on the research they've done up to that point. So a few things have changed since then. There was a study, what they did is, because they'd done all this work in 2010 and 2011, they had controls because they actually exposed grapes to fires, and so they had control samples and smoke-exposed samples. And they went back to these wines five to six years later using their new analytical techniques and did sensory on them again to see how they evolved with aging. Interesting fact. So both the control wines, control wines have free volatile phenols as well, right? It's in the grapes. They have bound compounds as well, just to a much lower extent. So during bottle aging, the control wines, the bound compounds released at the same rate as for the smoke-tainted wines, because they have, through sensory, determined all these wines that they smoke exposed were actually tainted. So they're like, wow, well, this is actually good news because um, it didn't change much. These bound compounds are way more stable than we think. However, when they did sensory analysis, The smoke-impacted wines were still smoke-impacted and actually was worse than before. Because they say it's due to matrix changes during wine aging. As wine ages, your fruit disappears and it made the smokiness stand out more. That's now what they're thinking. So the thing is, yes, even if they are more stable, unfortunately, these compounds are still there. If you have those bacterial microorganisms, they're still gonna be able to hydrolyze these compounds, unfortunately. And the thing is, we know now that the lower the pH and lower the temperature, the more easily they hydrolyze in your mouth. The higher actually the alcohol, the less. So, this is some people have played around with alcohol in wine, and some of the higher alcohol wine, the ashtray aftertaste is less apparent. And that's probably why. I think the enzymes don't work, don't hydrolyze as easily. Those wines. So what I did here is because many times our, our problem is we don't have controls. We don't know what the control data is. So somebody shows me data, I'm like, what's your baseline, right? It's really difficult to tell you your stuff is elevated if I don't know what the baseline is when there is no smoke in the air. So they did it for Shiraz, Cabernet Sauvignon, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, and Pinot Gris. Um, And so, what you're seeing here is the Shiraz included. So, we already know Shiraz is a variety that has very high levels of these compounds naturally. So, they mess up all your data, okay? Also, if you ever make wine and use use any kind of oak during fermentation, your free volatile phenol data means nothing. Because there's so much coming from oak that it will mess up your doti. You can only look at bound numbers then, as soon as your wine had any kind of oak contact. And basically what they found is in their control, this is when they originally did it, zero to 20 micrograms per liter. So this is now all seven volatile phenols added together. right? For the smoke tainted, it was one to 48. Now you see there's a big overlap in data. After six years of aging, you can see that there was an increase. But there's a very similar level of increase. I went to look, is there a higher percentage increase because they had more baseline if it was a smoke exposed wine? No, it was all over the show. There was no real trend, okay? And this is the total includes all the bound compounds that they can analyze for, that extra 13 compounds, okay? That gives you an idea. Now, say we do the same exercise, but we exclude Shiraz, because Shiraz have very high levels. Then it looks like this. You can see it immediately goes to lower numbers, right? Everything goes to lower numbers. But it's the same thing. 0 to 14 could just be normal. But from one, some of them thought that the wines were smoke-impacted. So some wines have very low free, but can actually have quite a bit of bound, as you can see. right? So this is the problem that we're having. If you need to predict something, but you don't know what the baseline data looks like. So this is if I did the same... Oh, see, now. I did the same exercise last night, which is now not on here because I gave Karen the wrong uh, presentation, where I only looked at galcol and formuthil galcol because that's what ETS measures, only those two. And if you only count those two together, the values are much, much lower. Then we were talking about... For Cabernet Sauvignon, was the highest. It was around 20. That is high. We know that you're smoke impacted if you're going to have a 20. But for Pinot Noir, it was a six. For Chardonnay, it was a one. Pinot Gris had zero. Um, Sauvignon Blanc had two. The problem is, they saw their white wines as being smoke impacted with free alcohol and formythil guacol levels that was basically zero to two. That is problematic. Uh, They had more of the other compounds and some bound, but not massive because whites are so, um, it's a more subtle wine, right? Reds can hide a lot more things. Um, And the thing is also, I don't know what they use their criteria for, okay, this is smoke impacted. This is the other thing. We're all using slightly different criteria when we do sensory analysis. So there's the other thing that people really need to be calibrated and start using the same terms and and, make, and have reference standards so that we can calibrate what's Glenn's five and what's my five. Is it the same level? So. This is Oakville Experimental Station, uh, the 11th of October in 2017. So I had a red blotch trial that obviously changed into a smoke impact test, um, as um, you know, smokiness was not really part of red blotch characteristics. So we ended up harvesting everything that was left there. It was about six tons. And we started doing basically what I did overnight is I did everything Australia did on the same lot of grapes. Just using yeast that we would actually use and using fermentation temperatures we would actually use just to see do we find the same thing and basically I can tell you this so we did how quickly does the compounds extract different yeast we did use different alternatives everything that they suggested we did um, this one I'm gonna skip is too complex to explain and it didn't work um, this one is different fermentation temperatures um, we made a rosé as well And basically what I can tell you now is, and this is what I tell winemakers now, make the best wine you can and then we worry afterwards. Basically, if it's a very low impact, a rosé can solve your problem. But if they extract so quickly, basically by the time you have color for a red wine, you have the volatile phenols. There's nothing you can do about it. They extract easily, they're hydrophilic, they extract into water. You're gonna so quickly get everything out. You can just as well try and make the best wine you can. Using different yeast, they're using different oak alternatives can really hide it. I have some wines that if you just smelled them, you would think they're lovely. Unfortunately, the moment you start tasting them, it does have this unnatural aftertaste that everybody knows shouldn't be there. And that is really the problem. We need to be able to fix that and to fix that, is really the bound compounds. So this is basically what I just told you. So what we're really focusing on at the moment is emulation. There's finding agents. There's reverse osmosis. And there's a lot of other new techniques now coming up. There's a lot of um, companies that have worked really hard to try and come up with solutions. If you did everything known to man, and you still ended up with a wine that you think are impacted, what do you do now? So. With the fines in 2018, I saw my chance because the Oakville wine, I have to say, they're low impacted. It took me six months to a year for some of those wines to actually show the smoke. So I got some grapes from here to have a medium impact and a high impact. My high impact is right next to, you know, those big dots of the high guacal numbers? I've got them. Um, If you ever need to calibrate people, you should give that to them as a calibration for it has that very distinctive ashtray taste. So what we're doing is we're taking these wines and we wanna try all the new technology that's out there. I have a smorgasbord of different enzymes. I wanna see if any of them can help hydrolyze these compounds. Can you hydrolyze the bound first and then treat it? Because almost all the treatments out there works better on the free, not the bound. So that's what we're trying, and then doing reverse osmosis and finding we have activated charcoal. Then there's this compound, molecular imprinted polymers. They're from New Zealand. They can put these things in like um, pad filters, and they promise me they take the bound out as well. They're making me some and shipping it to me, so that would be very interesting to see how well that works or not work. Then reverse osmosis. So there's now a new technique, which they call differential filtration. Basically what they're doing is, they're using ultrafiltration to get a fraction that has the bound compounds in it and have the fraction with the free. Then they only treat those two fractions and then they put it back together. Because if you treat the whole wine to, to get the bound out, you end up with water. So this is what they're trying to do to remove all the smoke and limiting the impact on the quality of the overall wine. And then Contact has been pretty much doing a similar thing, but instead of ultrafiltration, they're using a spinning cone. Same thing, getting the wines in different fraction, treating it with a resin, and then putting it back together to see what it does. So we're busy with tests doing this. They both seem to be able to reduce the free quite a bit, reduce some of the bound. It's not 100%. I'm still looking into these wines. They both do have a quality impact. It's a rough treatment to put your wine through. I've just done the spinning cone. I'm waiting. It's really like bottle shock to the extreme that these wines go through. You need to give them time to settle down. And so we'll see. I mean, at the very worst, I think perhaps you could do that and feel safer about using these wines for blending. That may be what you end up doing with them. I'll see. So people keep asking me about the numbers. So the thing is, we just don't have enough numbers. We're working on it. Um, We're working to get enough numbers together. But we need hundreds to actually build new good models, because the wine matrix is so, so complex. So basically, at this point in time, and we don't have a lot of baseline data across different varieties, we know different varieties may be less susceptible to smoke exposure. However, all the data we have comes from different fires. So it's not like they were exposed to exactly the same amount of volatile phenols. So that makes it difficult. So, This is based on data from Yoji Hayasaka when he did grape analysis in Australia. And basically, this is the three that, and you can see that's high numbers. Most here would say, okay, if you get close to that, you're impacted. The thing is, this is their original method. Now when you go back and look at their data, their numbers have gone down too. The methods have changed. And this is the problem. This is the other problem. For that data, this is what they saw as free in their smoked. But you can see, you can sometimes have zero free, and they've decided that those grapes were actually impacted. And there's the bound. So the numbers is really going all over the show. So I'm just quickly going to mention this. Thick skinned versus thin skinned varieties. I hear this stuff all the time. If you have a grape, it's susceptible, Okay. Thick skin, thin skin, Cabernet Sauvignon, and Pinot Noir, they all get impacted by smoke tank. So, perhaps there's a slight difference, but we don't see it. Um, Unripe versus overripe fruit, um, it's a little bit slower. Like I said, they're most susceptible when they're really ripe, but if the smoke is going to hang around, it's still going to impact them. Washing grapes, doesn't work. Ozone treatment. As a chemist, I don't see what ozone will do, personally. But there's a professor in Italy that's looking into this, and the last time he still didn't have data for me to look at, so I don't know. But I'm a little bit suspicious, let me put it that way, okay? I'll be surprised if it will remove, and if it removes anything, it won't remove the bound. Uh, Something else I want to say is smoke. There's some anecdotal evidence that If smoke is older, by the time it gets to your grapes, it may actually not have any volatile phenols in it anymore. Volatile phenols have a half-life. They do degrade, right? So they do sit on the smoke particles that you see. That's the ash that you see. But they're not in the ash. So just because you see ash doesn't mean that there's volatile phenols. They break down, there's some anecdotal evidence in Australia that after about 24 hours, if it's not replenished with new smoke, that it may not cause any smoke taint. That this big fire that went over the ocean and all the smoke came back over McLaren Vale, they tested up and down that valley, years later there's still no smoke taint in any of the wines or any numbers in any of the grapes that they stored. And they thought it was about 24 hours when the smoke came back and that that did something. So we really need to look at half-life of volatile phenols in the air. We only have data in the gut. And the gut and the air, obviously not the same environment. Then people are now looking into spray, grape spraying. Now, this is obviously, they looked at Kolin, that didn't work. It worked for Sauvignon Blanc and for Chardonnay. No, it didn't work for Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay, but it worked for Merlot. Don't ask me why. Um, and it worked a little bit, let me put it that way. People are now talking about a biopolymer that is the next best thing known to man and will work perfectly. I will wait and see. Um, so we're sort of looking at to Annie and me put in a grant for AVF to just do a little prototype box and release volatile phenols, spray grapes with different things, put it in the box, and just see what happens, right? Instead of having to do expensive vineyard trials, just do a little box and put a, you know, put a bunch of table grapes in there. They breathe, too. They have porous skins, too, and give you an idea if any of the stuff people are talking about is actually working. And obviously, people are like, well, when will I use it? And well, if you're in the ideal situation where you have 24 hours warning that smoke is coming your way, Perhaps for your reserve bottles, grapes, you want to go and spray it and limit the, the absorption of volatile phenols, right? It's not like you can dip every bunch in, so it's not like you're going to be 100%, but perhaps it will help. Um, yes, so this is the numbers very much to what Glenn was saying. It is at this stage you're saying in your grapes anything above 0.5 micrograms per kilogram. That is their limit of quantification. That is the lowest number they can give you. Okay? Because, like I said, sometimes even zero. But then you get grapes that's higher than that, and they have no, they don't result in wines that smoke tainted. This is the problem. There's a big gray area that we don't know what to do with. Like Lane said, I would definitely say. Analyzing grapes is not as good as either you make a mush and you let it extract for 24 hours and you analyze that juice, or you do the microferments. The microferments are real easy. you can do it in a bucket. It doesn't give you immediate results, but it gives you a much better idea of what may develop in a wine. That is much more those numbers predict for us the numbers you'll find in wine. Because Glenn is something three to ten times, I have a five to ten times. Basically, from grape to wine, there's a multiplication in that number because normal just squishing the grapes and analyzing it doesn't actually extract everything that's in that skin like when you go for a whole winemaking process. Okay, so this is the Australian numbers. And so they have some predictions that they make. It's not endorsed by the AWRI. It's their grape industry taking those AWRI numbers and coming up with their own kind of guidelines. Okay. So at this point in time, what are we trying to do? So I've submitted grants to the American Vineyard Foundation. Myself, Tom Collins, and Elizabeth Tomasino, the Washington State and Oregon State, are applying for a specialty crop grant to see if we can get money, multi-year money, to look into smoke taint. Um, we're working with COG and the Wine Institute to lobby for federal money um, to look into smoke taint and to, very importantly, get baseline numbers. Go to different regions, their main varieties, and get naturally without every, any smoke exposure, this is what you have in your grapes because that's what we really need to help crop insurance, grape growers, winemakers all make more informed decisions. Thank you.
0: The Vine Line is produced in association with the Lake County Wine Grape Commission, the UC Davis Department of Viticulture and Enology, and the UC Cooperative Extension. I'm Bill Grudy. See you next time.